1,112,975, the number of unique patients served by New York City Health and Hospitals in fiscal year 2018. H&H was created to more efficiently manage municipal hospitals and health facilities, and it plays a critical role in providing health insurance to the most vulnerable New Yorkers, namely those uninsured and those on Medicaid. It also plays an outsized role as a provider of inpatient mental health services. H&H has been under fiscal pressure for quite some time, and cash losses are projected in future years. In this episode, you'll hear Dr. Mitchell Katz, the CEO of H&H, discuss his transformation plan for closing those gaps and improving the fiscal viability and services provided by H&H. Welcome to What's the Data Point from Citizens Budget Commission and Gotham Gazette. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. I'm Maria Dulles from the CBC. Thanks so much for joining us. We have a special episode today. We've done a few of these before, but we have Dr. Mitchell Katz of Health and Hospitals, who gave some remarks at a CBC breakfast, and tune in for those. Those are going to be right after our fairly brief Q&A with Dr. Katz, which he sat down with us after giving his remarks at the CBC breakfast. So it's a little bit out of order, but you get to hear our quick Q&A with him and then his full remarks on this episode. So stay tuned for both those pieces. And before we get to that, if you've missed any of our recent episodes, we just did a good one on the new state budget, although there's a lot more to dissect there. We recently had former Deputy Mayor Alicia Glenn join us on her tenure. We've had Department of Transportation Commissioner Polly Trottenberg, Nicole Gelinas from the Manhattan Institute, a lot of great episodes to start uh, this year that is quickly advancing. So find those if you've missed any of them and stay tuned right now for our conversation with Dr. Mitchell Katz and then his remarks at the CBC breakfast. So we're here with Dr. Mitchell Katz. Thank you so much for taking a few minutes with us uh, after your remarks at the CBC breakfast. Uh, we'll just ask you a few, few follow-up questions and folks can tune in after our, this little chat for your, for your full remarks. But go ahead, right. Maria. So your talk was really centered about how the transformation plan will work, but our CBC audience is heavily invested in kind of the dollars and cents, right? So you've got both the expense-reducing initiatives and the revenue-raisers. In terms of the sums, um, the money sums, which are the sort of core um, initiatives that will help close the gaps that are projected at H&H? Sure. So the, the largest initiative for closing the gap is to correctly bill for insured patients. Uh, this is not one thing. It's a very long process um, that begins actually by getting fair rates from insurance plans. And we've discovered that in some cases, the rates that we're paid are way below what other institutions are paid for the same patients. We have to be good at um, making sure that we collect insurance information, that we call for prior authorization, that we correctly code the bills, that we send them to the correct place, and that we appeal in a timely fashion if the insurer does not uh, pay the amount. And this discipline has not been part of health and hospitals culture, because health and hospitals always viewed itself as, well, we take care of everybody regardless of insurance. So nobody was that focused on insurance. The other half of the insurance initiative is making sure that those people who are eligible for insurance actually are on insurance, whether that's Medicaid or the exchange. Um, we know that the, many of our patients are eligible, 
Uh, and again, because of the generosity of health and hospitals throughout time, there was never any reason to apply for insurance because you got great care and you paid $10. So why would you go to the trouble of enrolling? Uh, so uh, that's the second part of the revenue. Other initiatives that will bring in more revenue, uh, our single other largest is uh, developing a retail pharmacy um, at our hospitals. This is something health and hospitals used to do and stopped doing um, for not a good reason um, because public hospitals are able to purchase medications at lower cost than commercial pharmacies. Um, we'd be able to prescribe uh, and dispense medicines for our patients at our own hospitals and we would actually make a margin that we could then plow into improving care throughout health and hospitals. I want to return, you, you laid out a little bit of a plan to um, address serious mental illness, uh, something that's been you know the topic of a lot of conversation, obviously in part related to added scrutiny of the First Lady's Thrive NYC initiative, but the, the principles that you laid out and connecting that to the fact that health and hospitals provides the correctional care that you mentioned, can you, can you tie those together and are the principles that you laid out about um, new ways to address serious mental illness and, and sort of bridging the gap in coverage, as I think you, you more or less said, um, is that an actual plan? Is that, is that moving forward or is that just a broad outline at this no, point? No, I mean, it's, it's moving forward. Uh, in every system I've worked, um, what tends to happen is the disciplines rule instead of the patient's needs ruling. Um, so, you know, people say, well, I'm a this, I'm a that, I do a this, I do a that, I'm an inpatient doctor, I'm an outpatient doctor, I'm a social worker, I'm a care manager, um, I do mental health, I do physical health. But people there are fully integrated, right? They often don't really know what their issue is. Um, they may have severe mental illness and it presents entirely as a physical problem. They may have a physical problem and it's all reflective of the mental health illness. And we, you know, as caretakers, don't really take into account the complexity of people and we don't take into account the importance of relationships. Um, people get better mostly on the basis of relationships, um, not on the basis of medications that you dispense. The medications can be helpful. So, you know, my view is throughout health and hospitals, how do we make the system more uh, Client focus more patient focused, and especially in the area of mental health. Where, how do we really think deeply about what are the needs of people with serious mental illness? And, and and so, are you looking to implement that that program that you talked about? That's between yes. acute hospitalization. Yes. Okay. Yes. Working with the state. And and how does that relate to correctional health, where so many people with Sure. Well, I mean, with, in the case of correctional health, what we know in New York City is that there is a group of people with very severe mental health and addiction problems who rotate between the acute hospital, the shelter, and the jail. Um, and what we need if we want to interrupt that cycle is that at the time of hospitalization, if they're not, it's true, um, and again, I think this is where the mistake comes in. 
that at a certain point people don't need acute locked-in up services. Okay, but that doesn't mean that the right next step for a homeless, severely mentally ill person is a case management appointment next week. Right. So yes, they don't need to be locked up, but let's provide them a positive residential program that they want to stay at because it's better than shelter and it's better than the jail. I mean, we know that there are people who get arrested in order to be taken care of in jail. Um, and what a sad statement that we as a, as a society can't do better than that. And it doesn't save us any money, right? Jail is the most mm -hmm. expensive because you have all the costs of medical care. You have zero reimbursement, even if they have Medicaid, because by federal law, if you're, if you're in jail, there's no reimbursement. And then you have all the costs of security. So, you know, the fact that we make it necessary for some people to, you know, commit shoplifting in order to be sure that they're in a safe place, get their meds, get their food, and are housed, when we could do that so much less expensively elsewhere is really a condemnation on us. And you're looking to add those, right. those yes. beds, those programs. Right. Um, so one thing you spoke about in your remarks was how you work with labor to move forward on the transfer nation plan. And you also spoke about the challenges of um, kind of tackling the bureaucracy at H&H. Talk about a little bit about how you approach that, how you pursue that, if you've instituted a kind of a process to help get at some of these things, and whether labor has been productive, you know, a good partner right. in, in doing that. Right. Well, again, labor, as, as I said in my works, has been a great partner, and we share the same goal as far as I'm concerned, uh, which is providing quality care to our patients and growing the public sector and having it be successful. Uh, in terms of eliminating um, bureaucracy, so we shorten the employment form, uh, so people do not have to fill out 60 pages and nothing has to be notarized. I flatten the organization um, so that I have many more direct reports and I encourage others to do the same. There should be as little, uh, as few layers between a CEO and the nurse taking care of a patient as possible, right? Because that's it's how you change culture, right? If there are 14 levels, right? I've, some of the best ideas we've had about fixing the program came because I told, I made it clear that people could email me ideas. Now that may seem like a really trivial thing. What, what isn't trivial is that historically H&H has been run more like a paramilitary organization in the sense that you can only talk to your supervisor. It's felt that you're not, you don't bring things to anyone else. And my, my view is no, we should talk to everybody and we should admit our problems, right? I think another thing I've heard often is you shouldn't talk about the things that are not working at H&H because then someone will try to close you down, right? And of course, you know, you can't begin to make something better if you can't talk openly about its strengths and weaknesses. Um, so we've had great ideas come um, from uh, line staff, um, from physicians, uh, physician assistants, nurses, all along. 
do you know if you've eliminated the number of um, layers between you and the, the well, nurses? I, well, I have because uh, I eliminated a level. Uh -huh. Actually, I've since coming, I've eliminated two levels. Two levels. Okay. Uh, so yes. Yeah. Go ahead. Final question for me. Um, and one more for me, and we'll let you go because we've got your full remarks uh, to come yes, after this. Yes, you've been generous with your time, so thank you. What are the two or three changes at the state or the federal level that would really be impactful for helping finances and services at H&H? &H? Um, expanding Medicaid to include the undocumented. Um, and that's not just about money because, frankly, right now, um, emergency Medicaid does cover. But it creates a separate process, and it also means that the emergency Medicaid will pay for hospitalization and emergency room, all the expensive stuff. But what it won't pay for is insulin to keep somebody's diabetes controlled, so they don't need that. So it would be better for everybody, just let's have one program for low-income people. Um, they're here. If the U.S. wishes to pursue immigration policy changes, then pursue immigration policy changes. But, but while people are here, this is what other countries do as well. You know, they're here, they're working, take care of them. We absorb the expense anyway. So, you know, I, I think that. I think pushing true behavioral health, uh, physical health integration. Stop funding them as separate things. It's one thing. There is, there is, despite you know Freud being very smart, there is no psyche, right? There, right? Our brains are as much, you know, uh, physiologically run as any other part of our body. It's all chemicals and neurons, and that the maintenance of these as separate systems of care with separate rules. Right, I mean, uh, for example, the all mental health care is licensed by a different group at the state than physical health care. Just as a, right, so everything follows from that, right? And again, so that means that there is a set of rules about how you would take care of somebody's mental health that's different than physical health. Can you imagine if we said that there was a different system authority for diseases of the heart versus diseases of the stomach. People say, well, that's crazy. Why, why, why would you have an, an office of cardiology and an office of gastroenterology run by different people with different payment? They all, everyone pays you differently. Everyone eligibilizes you differently, right? No one would, would accept that. They'd say, that, that's crazy. But it's really the same thing that we, instead of trying to treat people as whole people, we, we separate them out. And just lastly, um, the recent announcement um, with the mayor about the NYC CARE program, um, you're, in your remarks you mentioned you know, trying to identify who's uninsured and how many can be insured. Mm -hmm. and, and as you just indicated in your answer to Maria, you know, making undocumented people eligible for Medicaid would be a fix you'd like to see, but in the interim, that's not the case. And you're trying, for those who can't be insured, you're trying to link everybody up with a primary care doctor, correct? Like that's the that's that's correct. A central goal of that, the NYC correct, care program. Correct. Where does that stand? I mean, what what's the sort of 
process there sure. in terms of getting that done? Well, so, you know, I think that the mayor has been great about supporting um, and uh, really leading this initiative. It goes live in the Bronx this summer. Mm -hmm. And as you say, um, the focus is on linking people to care. And I think it's interesting in the discussions about insurance, people often forget insurance is not care. Right, insurance is a financial system, often a financial system with profit, designed to pay for the care that you get. Right, It's designed to take money and send money. It's not about care. Um, and you can have an insurance card, be rich or poor, and not be able to get the care you need. Um, it's not just low-income people in the U.S. who are dissatisfied with the health care system here. Right. The people at every income level who are dissatisfied with the care, and it's because so much is about the insurance and not, and not the care. So uh, I think the mayor's initiative is great. It's going to allow us to add on all the customer service initiatives and expand access um, to primary care doctors throughout. All right, forgive me, because what you just said I have to ask. So are you, and, and we don't cover H&H &H very closely, so forgive me if you said this as well, but so based on what you just said, do you favor a single payer, a government? I, I do. I personally favor single payer. Uh -huh. uh, as a physician, uh, it can be so frustrating to me because instead of spending my time trying to care for people, I can spend my time trying to figure out what medicine is on their formulary um, or what, what things their insurance allows. Okay, well, this one allows eight physical therapy visits, this one allows six physical therapy visits. This medication, if it's given in this way, will cost the person more. I, right, I just want to take care of people. And I want to take care of them in a cost-effective way. I'm not in favor of like just spending more and more money. I just think, what a waste of time. Hmm. Um, I think, as in the New York Times had a very good article, it's the how do we get there from here. Um, it's a very hard road in part because there's money to be made mm -hmm. from insurance. Um, and do you, know how, <laughs> do you know how insurance companies make money? It's all about float. You pay your premium. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay, so you pay. And then at some point you might have an expense. Okay, but they've already had your money, mm -hmm. right, from before you had the expense. Let's say you go to the doctor. They're not going to pay your doctor that day. Right, so so maybe they've had your money. Then you borrow. go to the doctor. Then the doctor has to do a bunch of stuff. Maybe in two months the doctor sends the bill to the insurance. Maybe in another month or two they send the money. All of that is the float. The whole insurance agent, the whole insurance industry in the U.S. is based on the power of the float. That's what they make their money on. All right, we're going to have to have you back for a longer <laughs> conversation in a few months or so, but. But thank you for taking a few minutes right. with us. Thank you. My pleasure. So I, I took a red eye specifically so I could be here with all of you. And I was almost defeated by the Lincoln Tunnel, uh, as, as you might imagine. Uh, but I, I'm proud to talk about the transformation of health and hospitals. Uh, health and hospitals is an organization with a huge heart. Um, but not necessarily the best business acumen uh, when it comes to running things, uh, or at least that would be my assessment based on 14 or 15 months. The good thing is that it's a lot harder to find 
good doctors, good nurses, and get good clinical care than it is to you know, basically make a system work. Um, and I think we've discovered in, even in the 14 months that we've been there um, that this is an entirely doable project. We haven't erased the deficit, um, but we now have a plan that will erase the deficit, and we're so far on that plan. So uh, big picture, all county systems, including health and hospitals, existed before low-income people had insurance, right? So prior to Lyndon Johnston, no low-income people had insurance, and so, of course, all care delivered couldn't be reimbursed. What happened is first through Johnson, Medicaid, Medicare, then there have been a variety of Medicaid expansions culminating with the ACA. What public systems had to do during those years is get better and better at billing and figuring out how to survive just as other Medicaid providers do. Um, that was certainly something I saw in San Francisco. That was something that I saw in Los Angeles. Um, and for whatever reason, health and hospitals is, was a little bit slower uh, to get there. Um, but now we are there. Um, we, in terms of patient revenue, which is the real money, not, not money that comes from lobbying, um, we produced $150 million last year uh, more of patient revenue than the year before. And this year, uh, on top of that 150 million, we have another 50 million, so we're going to be 200 million. Um, and this is just the beginning of the efforts because uh, proper billing uh, requires everything from whether or not the person who comes in asks for your insurance card, prior authorization, uh, codes the record correctly, sends the bill to the right place, appeals the bill if it's not paid. It's a long process, and there are a lot of places where that can go wrong um, if the system is not used to doing this. And certainly H&H, &H, um, the wonderful thing about it, has a tremendous culture of we take care of everybody, which I 100% support, and part of why I'm so passionate about billing insurance companies is because I want enough money to take care of everybody, and I want to take care of them in a quality way. To me, there, there is uh, no valor in running a system um, that takes care of everybody if it doesn't take good care of them, right? The point is to, ha to provide quality care to low-income people, not to just be a place that you don't send bills uh, from. So uh, that's been a major part of the transformation. There is more work to be done. We've discovered um, that often the rates that uh, private insurance is paying us is off the curve. In general, you're not supposed to know what anybody is getting paid, um, except their consultants, maybe some of you in the room, who can tell you what everybody is getting paid. Um, so. Uh, and and it's, uh, it, it can actually even be more apparent than that. Uh, I get my health care at health and hospitals um, to support my system. And I discovered uh, from my own insurance bill that uh, this particular insurer, I have Cadillac City Insurance as an employee, is paying $42 for a first visit with a primary care doctor. 
Now, nobody could break even on $42 first visit for a primary care doctor, right? You not only have the expense of, of the doctor, but you have the nurse who puts you in the room, the registration clerk who, who, put, who checked the schedule, and then all the people who have to send out the bill to get that $42. And I can tell you um, from my experience uh, with the same insurer when I was in Los Angeles having broken my uh, leg and got my care at Cedars-Sinai, that Cedars-Sinai was getting very different rates from my same Cadillac insurance uh, provider, right? Because they had negotiated a different rate because the insurer wants Cedars-Sinai in the network. And so the next part of our work is making sure that we're getting fair rates. And again, why? Because the goal is to not use scarce city subsidy to subsidize insurance plans. The goal is to use the subsidy to provide quality care. So the other big lesson I learned, and you know, I, the, you, you have to remember that I agreed uh, to take this job after being told that there was a $1.8 billion deficit on a $7.5 billion base. Uh, and, and I still agreed to leave sunny California where it's always 75 degrees in Los Angeles uh, to come here. Um, Part of, part of why uh, we fixed it is recognizing um, that we were, that a lot of that hole wasn't the care of low-income uninsured people, it was subsidizing insurance plans. So we're fixing that. Another large part which the Mayor's Initiative is going to help us to fix is, I also assume coming from California, um, that all of the people who we call uninsured were uninsurable. Um, so Health and Hospitals talks about the 600,000 people it takes care of who are uninsured in New York. But it turns out half of those people can be insured. Um, they're eligible either under the exchange or um, under Medicaid. Uh, so those people should be enrolled. It would be better for them and better for the system. And ironically, health and hospitals was so good in terms of how it approached uninsured people that nobody saw a reason to get insurance, right? You can imagine how this went, right? We take care of everybody uh, regardless of insurance. Oh, you have to pay $10. Well, a person who thinks, well, I'd have to pay $10 anyway as a copay even if I had insurance. Right, so there's no incentive. Nobody sees why there would be a need for insurance. But insurance comes with a large subsidy. So uh, the next part of our effort is making sure that everybody who is insured, or who is insurable, actually gets insurance. Um, again, it's sort of interesting, the local dynamics. New York City and the Public Health Department did actually a very good job of getting people in the community insured. The people who, because they were able to say, you know, you're not getting care. If you get insurance, you'll be able to get care. For the people who were in health and hospitals, they were getting care, and they were happy with the care they were getting. So nobody realized, well, but we're losing out on, on that insurance. Um, so being able to insure that group of people. And I've done a number of, you know, initiatives that any of you as smart business people would do. I looked at how much space do we actually need? I was able uh, to decrease the, our footprint 
by about uh, 25%. Uh, we're going to move to a new building. We will no longer need a van to shuttle people around for a savings of about $50 million. Um, we did a large number of administrative um, decreases. It's never a happy moment to have to lay people off. Um, but my feeling is the money has to go to patients, um, has to provide quality care, or there's no point in being in this business. And so what I wanted that money for was nurses. And so um, we decreased our administrative staff and we increased um, the number of nurses and physicians that work in our system because to me what always matters is what's your core mission, what are you getting up to do. I spend most of my time as an administrator, but I'll tell you if I had to have a health system either that only had doctors and nurses or only had administrators, I'd go with the only doctors and nurses, right? So given that, it seems like what I need to do is to you know, put our money into that. We found lots of examples where we had duplicative contracts for the same thing. Well, I guess that's what makes them duplicative. Um, the, and so once we recognized that, we could go to a single contract, get a better rate. Um, that's, we're doing that now on pharmaceutical purchasing, on device purchasing. Um, so that, that will, over time, take care of our expenses. So we've been able, in the 14 months, to push up the revenue and decrease the expenses. Uh, and I think overall, this then enables us to really look at, at our service delivery system, figure out um, what is the right model. Uh, it clearly needs to be more of a primary care model, though I've, I've learned now that I'm back in my home um, that New York City is not a primary care place. You know, everybody has a doctor for their right nostril and a doctor for their left nostril. It seems to be a very New York thing. One of the, one of the very first uh, patients I saw in my own uh, clinic here at Gouverneur um, was a, a, a monolingual immigrant. Um, and when I asked um, what it was uh, that she needed, she said, I need a, a referral to a thyroid specialist. I'm like, people just here know somehow that in New York, we always go to the specialist. Right, nobody, no, so we're, we're gonna focus a lot on primary care because that's the one thing that consistently comes up in the studies is providing higher level of care uh, for uh, less money. Um, and then really think about what is the value of, of a public hospital system. Uh, to me, again, everything starts and ends with mission. You know, what is it that we do that is different than what other hospitals do. Uh, because in New York State, where there's emergency Medicaid and there's disproportionate share hospital dollars, all hospitals are getting paid for the uninsured. So it raises the question, so what is the value of a public system? Well, one of the values that I see is we are much better at addressing people's social needs. Uh, and I don't mean like social as in cocktail, but social as in housing, food, transportation, translation, childcare, uh, people who are in violent relationships, people who have been traumatized, 
that we have the cultural competency that allows us to take care of people in a very humane uh, and meaningful way. Uh, and that, that that's not something that you can do everywhere. Every H&H hospital has a lawyer to help people with immigration issues. Every health and hospitals uh, site has somebody to enroll people into um, SNAP, which is the, what people know as the food stamp benefits. Uh, we just housed 50 people through our health plan, uh, Metro Plus. We're building at the back of Kings County Hospital supportive housing that will be for people who are stuck in the hospital simply because they're homeless. That's a set of services that we can do better than anyone. And so the, the health and hospitals that I imagine going forward, and that I look forward to the help of this group and uh, all of you, is a hospital system that provides quality care, um, that really focuses on the social determinants of health, that's fiscally um, solvent for the long haul, that's not, that's not asking for every year a different handout from the city, but is you know, predictable. Um, there are things that require city subsidy. Um, there is no reimbursement for outpatient care for undocumented, uninsured people. That requires subsidy. Um, the uh, mental health services, health and hospital, provide 60% of the behavioral health services of the entire city. Why is it that we do that and the other hospitals keep shrinking their mental health portfolio? It's because you can't break even on mental health services. You can make a margin on transplant, but you can't break even on mental health services. Doesn't matter how efficient you run it. It's just not enough reimbursement uh, from the state for those services. So we are the dominant provider. That's fine. From my point of view, that's mission that fits well with addressing the social determinants of health, but that will require a predictable subsidy. But that's what we should be. We should be an organization where the city can say, you know, health and hospitals, we want you to take care of the people who are truly uninsured, who are not eligible for those services for which there's no Medicaid. We want you to be the mental health provider because that's something you do well and our city desperately needs. We recognize that requires a subsidy, those services. Other than that, we expect you to run like other systems and generate your revenue. We expect you to be efficient uh, with your resources and provide quality services uh, to all. Hi. You, earlier, you mentioned disproportionate uh, share hospital payments. Uh, the government is planning to cut back on some of these payments. What do you think will be the negative impact, and how would you address it? Sure. So first, there already has been a cutback on disproportionate share hospital dollars, and that's part of what generated the deficit of health and hospitals. Because in the ACA, the idea was instead of giving hospitals money, the end of the year for the uninsured people, let's give people insurance, which is a concept I believe in. I believe you should empower people, right? You shouldn't make them ask for charity care uh, and then reimburse the hospitals. Give them insurance cards and let their money flow with them. So there was already a large cut. Now then there's a proposed one that's due this fall, 
I believe it will not happen uh, because it's such a large cliff and disproportionate share hospital is not just for uh, ho hospitals like ours that are public hospitals taking care of low-income people. A lot of other hospitals rely on it. Uh, and so uh, hos the hospital industry includes both sides of the aisle. Uh, a lot of hospital executives are going to be you know, campaigning to Congress to prevent it. Uh, this big cut has been pushed off twice, and that's why it, it, it's so big at this point. Uh, last thing that is something we should watch is at the moment, um, if there were a dish cut, all of the beginning of the cut would be health and hospitals. And that's because of how the New York State has distributed its dollars. Um, so uh, we need to continue to work with New York State to be sure that first that there's an equitable distribution of disproportionate share hospital dollars. The D, the disproportionate, is supposed to mean those hospitals that do a disproportionate share. New York does it more like pro rata. So, you know, you do this amount of uh, low-income care, you get this amount of disproportionate share dollars. That's not really how the program is supposed to run. It's supposed to be if you do a small amount, you cover that on your own because you have good payers. If you do a large amount, you get the dollars. So many moving pieces. And you mentioned measures to raise revenues and to lower expenses. When all your plans are in place and you've taken them as far as you think you can, then uh, what is left in terms of an ongoing city subsidy? Sure, that's, that's an excellent question. I may need John to help me a little bit. Um, the first, well, it was 1.8 when I agreed to do the job. When the share hospital cut got pushed off, it went to 1.5. Um, so then we've been working against 1.5, and we have a five-year plan that eliminates it. But that doesn't answer the question, John, that at that point going forward, approximately what is the size of the city subsidy? Thank you, Dr. Katz. Mike Kopko, Oscar Health. Um, two questions, if you don't mind. Uh, one, just comments on this. We're seeing in reimbursement mix a move to outpatient versus inpatient. A lot of systems trying to generate revenues that way, change pricing that way. Interested in what the city's view on this payer mix is, or to the extent it's just a management mix. And then a separate question, but you mentioned uh, behavioral health, mental health. If you kind of had some first principle uh, design elements that you could uh, impute in our system, what would you do if you're looking 10, 20 years out? What kind of a system would you want to leave behind? Sure. Uh, well, uh, let me start with the second one, um, which is what kind of mental health system um, should we have? The problem with the current mental health system, from my point of view, is that uh, for people with serious mental illness, the people we most worry about, the people we sometimes see on the subway or sitting on the, the bench, that right now there is nothing in between acute hospitalization, 24-hour care locked up, and an appointment with a case manager seven days later after the person leaves. There's no sort of middle road. Um, and I think for the people who have the most severe mental illness, what they need is 
a progression of levels of care and that right now our system drops off too precipitously because our, our system is all based on the either you can be held against your will or you can't be held against your will. If you can be held against your will, then you're in the, the hospital. If you can't be held against your will, good luck to you. Here's your appointment with your case manager. Um, and that's just not a workable model for very severe mental illness. Um, and the other thing I think we do wrong in the field of mental illness is that this is a group of people for whom relationships are the central issue, right? I mean, they often have difficulty forming relationships, don't have strong relationships with friends and families. So what do we do? We see them intensely in the hospital. Then we discharge them. They'll never see any of the people they saw in the hospital again. I mean, they might if they wound up back in the same hospital and they happened to catch the same team. But right, wouldn't you think that a mental health system for severely mentally ill people would all be based on continuity, that you would have a single team that would follow you through all levels of care? So what I'd like to see, and we're, we're working on, on the basic parts of this, is um, that we have levels of care that are more intense than a case manager, but not acute locked up, and that we're able to work with people toward recovery with single teams that follow them. And other states have done this, so it's, it's, not, it's not magical or even my idea, uh, but I think it would make a difference. Um, what I was thinking when you're talking about you know, primary care and payment, um, our country's payment system, and you know this from dealing with Oscar, is so messed up. There are so many perverse incentives and strange things. Like, for example, if you admit today a patient to a hospital and the insurance denies the hospitalization because the person doesn't need to be in the hospital, the hospital will still earn the GME payment for that hospital. And for some hospitals with a large Medicare population, that'll still be a good rate. So, you know, here, so here, you know, you have terrible outpatient reimbursement, and then you get paid even when the person doesn't need to be at the hospital. Uh, even, I should say, even when everybody agrees the person doesn't need to be in the hospital. So my view on so service delivery is that we, while I want to bill effectively, I don't want to build my system based on what's going to give me the, the greatest dollar. And it's, it's not even so easy sometimes to figure out because, for example, in general, outpatient reimbursement is very low compared to hospital. But increasingly, our contracts are risk-based. So if I did more outpatient visits and kept people out of the hospital, I'd actually do well. Um, but of course, they're not all risk-based. Right, only some of, so, so that's why I've decided, you know, that we should do the right thing. Um, and overall for our country, more primary care, less hospital is the right thing, both from a care point of view and from a financial point of view. So that's what I'm going to focus on. I have a couple of district questions for you. One is, um, when the funds end, you, what, what, is, what is going to happen to the services that you have designed and developed around One City Health? And secondly, have you seen any impact either in, it, in the integration of behavioral and physical or in workforce development out of the money from district that's been spent in the system? 
you know, Stephen, I think Disrup is still uh, a little bit open uh, in terms of the verdict on how well it's worked. I, I, I think there's likely to be a two-year no-cost extension because all the money has not been spent. Um, I think that the things that work are going to get institutionalized. Um, so I think there's been some good work around care management. I think there's been some good work about getting patients the appropriate referrals for housing or food or the other things that they need. Um, we've done uh, one of our uh, recent successes, which we did on disrupt money, was to create uh, fast-track clinics in our emergency room because uh, the recognition that, well, if people have gone to the emergency room for generations and that's how they've seen their care, it's very unlikely that they're going to start going to a primary care office. So give them a transitional object. So we create a clinic uh, that is right next to the ED. So you arrive at the ED, and the triage nurse says, we're happy to see you in the ED, but you know, by the way, wait times are much less if you just go over there to express care, um, if, assuming the person has that kind of you know, problem that isn't so severe that requires the ED. And what has happened is then we've been able to dramatically decrease wait times. Um, and people are getting the appropriate services that they need and not, not more extreme services that they really don't need. And we're staffing those express care with primary care doctors who I then want to pull them, those patients, and say, you know, you don't have to come here to see me. You could have a regular appointment at my clinic at Marsania um, or at Gouverneur. Um, so that was a DISRIP uh, project. You know, it's such a complicated program and it has like 50 different things. So I think all we can hope is that the successes get institutionalized and the, the things that didn't work, and that's okay, not everything works, you know, goes by the wayside. Muzzy Rosenblatt, BRC. We're a housing and social services provider working with about 10,000 to 15,000 homeless individuals a year. I just came back from LA and San Francisco, where you are a legend, and I'm thrilled that you are here. Well, thank you. And so, uh, well, thank you, hopefully. Um, and so you talked a little bit about homelessness and behavioral health, and, and I agree entirely with the, with the principles you espoused. Um, you created something in California, and I'm what, called the Flexible Housing Subsidy Program very innovative. We're not doing anything really like that here, and I was wondering whether you could comment on the opportunities and challenges of creating some sort of program like that for New York. Sure. Um, so I'm very, I am very pleased. Uh, so basically the idea of the flexible housing subsidy was we'll do whatever is necessary to get somebody housed. Um, so the common subsidies, and it was, you know, the, the, the brainchild for that, was that people in LA had subsidies and they couldn't get housing, right? Uh, so they would, because what some people need is they just need a little help, right? Some people need a lot of help. Some people have kids. Some people have a caretaker. So they need a two-bedroom apartment, right? So we said, okay, well, we're not going to fix an amount. We're just going to do what's necessary. The big difference between LA and New York, which is the challenge in figuring out whether you can implement it here, is the housing market. So in LA, we were able to get one bedroom apartments for $800 uh, a month. And so, and again, the, the beauty of the subsidy, uh, the, 
program we created was we guaranteed the landlords the money. So the landlords were happy to rent to us. Um, so we had none of the issues that people have with Section 8 housing, right? We were the guarantor. We got a group that was really sophisticated at dealing with private landlords. Um, and I think uh, in my time, we housed 4,700 people, and I think they're beyond 5,000. Here, right, the vacancy rate is minuscule in New York. Um, and the other challenge is that there are currently, and many of you know this, and certainly you do, 70,000 people living today in shelter. Um, probably 20,000 of whom need supportive housing. So, right, we didn't have that in LA, of people already uh, in a place, but a place that's not permanent. Um, and so I'm still trying to wrap my mind around exactly how we do it, uh, how I can be part of it out with people like you and helpful. One thing we can do is the land. Um, that's the easy one, right? So, you know, again, in LA, because there was a private market, that wasn't an important strategy. Here, because I see there, you know, this is not enough housing, I think giving H&H land over to people who can do it, the problem, as you know, is it still takes years even if you have site control in the land um, because of the, the work in supportive housing. So I'm still sort of looking and thinking about how, how we do this. The, well, uh, do, you want to say, can, do you want to say a little bit more? Uh, sure. So um, what we've started to do is look at how we can recapture uh, current city expenditures on shelter which currently go to pay rent to private uh, developers, private landlords. That if nonprofits like us and many others in the city were the developers and can be the developers and do, we can build both shelter and housing and recapture the profit piece of what we would pay in rent to a private landlord and use it as a cross-subsidy for housing. If we can combine that cross-subsidy with an $800 a month investment from, a, say, a 15-year commitment, because the other part is if you do it annual appropriation, you can't get financing for that. That $800 plus the cross-subsidy would be sufficient to have both transitional housing with a medical or behavioral health specialty, which is what we do, mm -hmm. and the housing that people then can move into. So I think if That's you look great. at the dollars from a different perspective and figure out how to recapture them, you can accomplish that. It does take time, which is why we should get started. I'm in, I'm in for the 800 I mean, I have a large number of patients. I have a large number of patients who, if, if $800, because of the other things, could house them, it would not only be a, a great humanitarian act for them, but it would save us money because they're stuck in the hospital. Thanks. Do we have the right number of public hospitals for today's healthcare environment? Oh, well, that's a great question. I mean, it. If you were to say the obvious, if you were building new, right, you wouldn't build the same 11 hospitals in the same place they are, no question. Uh, the more complicated issue is, so what do you do when you have them, right? Uh, hospitals have, you know, mythic characteristics to communities. Um, and that's just not public hospitals, all hospitals. Uh, I have tried to, to help people to understand that we, we should not use the language in a derogatory fashion of 
half-empty hospital. And I'll, I'll say a little bit more why that is. Uh, you take a hospital like Met, Metropolitan, that is taking care of about 160 people, about uh, half of whom have serious behavioral health issues. It wouldn't help me if you took the top floors off Met, right? If it, I mean, may, basically, as long as we you know, turn off the lights and don't staff an empty ward, the cost is pretty minuscule. Certainly not, not the kind, there's no huge savings um, from doing that. If, if, as long as you're good about not staffing empty beds, right? If you're staffing empty beds, you have a different problem. Um, so I've tried not to focus so much on the physical structures themselves, but instead on what's the right services in each of them. So uh, Queens had a half-empty rehab. Elmhurst had a half-empty rehab. We created one rehab at Elmhurst, and then we took the empty ward, and we created more medical surgical beds, which the emergency room was needing. Right. Uh, uh, Harlem closed its burn unit because the census was way too low. People were going to Cornell, which is nearby, uh, higher volume, and there are fixed costs associated with maintaining a burn unit. Um, we probably have too many pediatric wards uh, for the volume that some of them have. Um, so I'm doing it more service by service. I'm trying to figure out, you know, what what the right services are to any of the buildings, and then also what else might I use the building for, right? So that so that each all the space is used. But I I think that's a more helpful conversation than getting into a bruising battle about closing a hospital per se. Nice to see you again. Good to see you. Um, You've been clear and eloquent about the, the mission, the role of the public hospital system. We also have a voluntary hospital system in New York. And unlike California, it's all voluntary, no for-profits, tax exempt. What do you see as the mission and role of the voluntary sector? Are you happy with what they're doing? Would you like them to relieve you of some of the responsibilities you have for people with social problems? Or do you want to take away business from them? What's your vision for the... Right. Well, I definitely don't want to take away business from anyone. My view, uh, I've always wanted jobs that nobody else wanted. You know, I always want to take care of people who need that care, um, right? If, if somebody's getting care and they're happy with it, not to be too much like what Obama with the insurance, you know, they should continue, right? I'm not trying to take anybody, any patients away. I think since we were talking about um, behavioral health, I think that, that that's an area where the the nonprofit sector really should do it. Because, well, not, not to offload me, but because they're taking care of people except for a part of the body and a, and a known illness. Um, and I think that that's wrong. I mean, I, I, my career is about taking great care of low-income people, but I want everybody to get good care, right? I'm, so, you know, I'm happy for there to be a public system and for us to be culturally proficient in the care of people with social needs. I'm happy for there to be a, a nonprofit sector taking care of other people. But I, I, I do, it does bother me the idea, well, but we don't do mental health. 
uh, because I've always felt that, that these issues are not separable. Physical health, mental health, our, our brain is all chemicals and synapses, just like our GI tract. As you look at um, all of your fixed assets in the 11 buildings, are you considering, and I know I've read some uh, about micro-hospitals and other things that you're looking at to spread out the um, ability to care uh, for um, your um, your patients uh, and, and customers. Uh, so that's one question. And also, H&H um, &H has been a, a bit of an in and out for, for senior leadership over the last couple of decades. And if you stay for a while, how are you addressing the cultural issues? Okay. Uh, well, uh, in terms of microclinics, I mean, uh, Health and Hospitals has 70 outpatient sites. Seems like an awful lot for a city our size with a reasonable public transport system. So, I mean, I, I again, I am interested in the question of what does each hospital do? And each hospital should not be doing the same things. Um, and once we get to a model where each hospital is doing the right things, I think it's easier to talk about how those assets uh, stay. I mean, in, in terms of me, you know, I, I'm a Brooklyn boy. I, I came back to take care of my elderly parents. I'm going to, they, they and I, assuming I, the hardest thing I've ever done in my career, for those of you who are dealing with these issues, is trying to get my 96-year-old father, 91-year-old mother, out of the house in isolated Rockland County that they live in, uh, where they have no help, um, to a uh, apartment in Tribeca Tower. Uh, move date is next Tuesday, so wish me luck. I'm going to live three floors with my kids, three floors away from them. Um, so I, I'm here for the long haul, and I, and I think that the you know to me the again health and hospitals. What do we do? We take care of people, and I think that uh, doctors, nurses have appreciated the idea that, you know, I'm not a leader who's sort of interested in the wonky stuff. I'm interested in the patients. I'm interested in the clinics and the flow. And does somebody answer the telephone when you call? And, you know, is there somebody you can call if you can't get a prescription? And I think that overall, that over time, focusing people on not the bureaucracy, but the care delivery will change the culture of health and Thank you. And uh, you mentioned that uh, Metro Plus has over half a million members, and that seems possibly to have a vast potential benefit for health and hospitals. Can you talk a little bit more about it and what your hope for, would be over the next uh, three to five years for that program? Sure. So the, uh, for those of you who, who are not in the insurance industry, one of the reasons you, you want, if you're health and hospitals, to have an insurance plan is to help get the members to your services. Unfortunately, um, health, uh, Metro Plus has historically, 70% of the dollars have not gone to health and hospitals. They've gone to outside providers, which I think is a tremendous loss of opportunity and raises the question of why have a health plan, right? I mean, what's the, pur what's, what's the purpose of a health plan that, that just sends everybody outside? So we've been, we've been working and they've been working hard at getting basically figuring out it's not their fault either that patients were going elsewhere because they would call health and hospitals and nobody would answer the telephone. Or they'd say, well, we're full. Or we don't do that kind of thing. We don't, we don't do those kinds of referrals. So what we're trying to do is get the alignment right where we're able 
to take care of those patients. There will always be in Metro Plus a need for an outside network. For example, we have no hospitals in Staten Island, and that's great. Um, but what I don't want is that people are going outside Metro Plus simply because we don't answer the telephone, right? That's not a good reason, and, and that's a lost opportunity. So you're going to ask me at least one of your hard questions? Oh, come on, Andrew. This isn't this isn't so hard, but have we talked about your relationship with labor and your transportation? Our labor's been phenomenal and they should how be did phenomenal. You, how did you get that to happen? Because labor and I have the same goal, which is uh, to grow a successful public system. The worst thing for public unions is for people to feel that the care isn't good, for the, that the system is shrinking because it doesn't have enough money. Um, and I'm not talking about shrinking things. I'm talking about how do we provide great services. I, I, I haven't had a single argument in 14 months. With the Thanks, Amy. Thank Bye.